Hey, folks, fall is upon us. You can feel it in the air every morning, which means it's prime time to call Steel. S-T-I-H-L. Get online right now. SteelUSA.com. Again, it's S-T-I-H-L. And you'll see a plethora of products. They're going to help you clean up this fall and get uh, the yard ready for the winter. Blowers, pruners, power washers, you name it, they've got it. And they have all kinds of deals going right now to make your life much easier financially. Isn't that great? You know, save a few bucks. We all love to save a few bucks. Steel's going to take care of you. And they have the best products in the business. Been telling you about them for years and years. They're that good. I trust them. And uh, I know you do as well because the pros do. It's S-T-I-H-L, SteelUSA.com. Look at their site and all of the different products that are going to help you out. I'm a battery-powered guy. I think it's the easiest way to go about your business. Um, And they have a steel dealer around the corner from you because there are more than 10,000 of them around the country. You can find them at SteelDealers.com as well. S-T-I-H-L, Steel, simply the best. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, Drew and his TV partner Ryan Spielborgs discussing the implications of the Rockies' 100-loss milestone. I think 100 is, is a pretty good indicator that you're, you need to make some changes. I think in one sense, from a baseball standpoint, um, you should be a little embarrassed about it. Also, what's the ceiling on future core players Nolan Jones, Ezekiel Tovar, Brenton Doyle, Hunter Goodman, and Michael Tolia? Should the Rockies extend Charlie Blackman, Owen Spilly is going to fix the pitching staff for us. Plus, yeah, we'll talk Broncos and Buffs. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast wherever you find podcasts and tell a friend. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Welcome in, folks. It is show number 221. Kind of recapping last weekend and uh, looking forward a little bit. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. I'll start with the Broncos, I guess. 70 points. Never heard of that. And uh, the reason I've never heard of it, it's only happened four times in the history uh, of the NFL. And I've never heard of 726 yards being allowed offensively. And that was the second most, as I'm sure you're well aware of by this point, and uh, are sick of talking about it. So I'm not going to talk a lot about it because it's uh, you know, almost uh, old news at, at this point. It was shocking. It was shocking in that 350-plus yards in the air, 350-plus yards on the ground. 350 yards on the ground. You know when that used to happen? That would happen when Oklahoma and Barry Switzer were were in their heyday running the wishbone and they were playing Kansas or Iowa State back in the 70s and, and they would run for 350, 400, 450 yards. It doesn't happen in the NFL. There aren't enough plays in the NFL. I could not believe that. Could not believe that. You couldn't believe it. And um, it's not a shock that the Broncos lost to a very good Miami team, especially offensively, as fast as they are, led by Tyreek Hill uh, and Tua. But it was shocking the amount of points, the number of yards. And also a difficult week, to say the least, for the University of Colorado and their juggernaut. 3-0 going to Eugene, and and they got boat raced. They got their ass handed to them. And and Coach Prime said as much afterward. It's a good old-fashioned butt kicking. No excuses, no nothing. Here's what I want to bring up about those two situations. 
you know, because you listen listen to this uh, podcast, that, you know, how can you not be a huge fan of, of what Deion Sanders has done? I mean, it's really remarkable in so many ways. And they're sitting at three and one and they're, and they're preparing for USC. And that's going to be a tough go. I mean, that's going to be a really tough go, especially up front. And that's where we're learning quickly that Colorado is most efficient. They're fine skills, you know, in the skill positions, wide outs, um, you know, even without Travis Hunter right now, uh, their quarterbacks, elite, 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 first round pick in Shador Sanders. Um, uh, I, I think in the secondary, even without Travis Hunter, they're fine. They need to be better up front on both sides of the ball. And that and that's coming. I mean, clearly with what he's done in terms of roster overhaul, there's a high expectation that he'll be in some great homes or get some additional great transfers of guys that will help in those two areas rapidly in this offseason. So I don't worry about that. Um, but, but it does take me to something that is uh, an area, especially in football, but in all sports, we know that, you know, if, if you are going to speak out and, you know, point your finger and say, hey, look, look at me, look at us, when you get defeated and you get defeated in a big way, there's going to be a lot of people who are gloating. And I'll begin with Sean Payton. Um, I don't know Sean Payton. Sean Payton has a terrific resume, so much so that the Broncos uh, traded a second-round pick to get the rights to negotiate with Sean Payton and have him become their head coach. Sterling resume. He also has the feeling, and this is from afar, of being somebody that I would categorize as believing they're the smartest guy in the room in every room they walk into. That's just the feeling I get. And you can look back no further than the comments he had on the previous coaching regime led by Nathaniel Hackett. There's a code in sports, and I think particularly so in football, that even if you don't know another guy, you don't rip someone else. It's a fraternity. And I think when he ripped Nathaniel Hackett, that wasn't just a slight specifically to Nathaniel Hackett. I think other coaches took notice and had the back, so to speak, of Nathaniel Hackett as in, you don't do that. And Mike McDaniel from Smoky Hill High School against the team he followed and rooted for growing up. I mean, he could have hung 73 on him. As we know, he put a knee down instead of kicking uh, a, a field goal to set the NFL record for points scored. But I think there was part of him that said, you know what? This is for, and I don't know, I don't know if Mike McDaniel has a relationship with Nathaniel Hackett, but it's like you broke the code. You broke the code. And be careful, little glass houses where you throw stones. And now as we speak, the Broncos are 0-3. And, and the 70 points may be the, the lowest point in franchise history. Giving up 70 points? I, I didn't expect them to win. You didn't expect them to win going down to Miami based on what we'd seen the first couple of weeks. Um, I don't know. And, and, and always point the finger back at yourself. I know it's a cliche, even if you don't mean it. But, you know, we have to be better as coaches. It begins with me. Because if you're the CEO, and that's what the head coach is, it starts with you. It starts with you. So that was rough. Um, you know, Vance Joseph, 
rough. The, the, you can't give up. Let me say this, man, and you, and you all know this. You can't give up 70 points in an NFL game unless there is some form of we are no longer giving anywhere close to great effort. And you saw that in the tackling. The tackling was awful. But you can't give up 70 points in an NFL game unless the effort becomes lacking. You can't. This is not Alabama playing Western Kentucky. This is not USC playing Abilene Christian, where it is a physical mismatch. It's not what it is. This is the NFL. Every team has NFL players. Are their teams better than other teams? Absolutely. But it should never be one team scores 70 and the other team is, is you know, barely able to, to do anything on the other end of the field. Shouldn't come to that. And so, yeah, some of that blame's got to lie at the feet of Vance Joseph. I mean, how do you go from a what, what you look, what looks to be a pretty good defense to just got off. And I know there were injuries on the back end, especially at the safety spot, uh, but I, I'm not here to break it down. I'm just saying it, it was a, it was a horrendous look. And I think you put a target on your back. If you're Sean Payton with some of the things that you said in the off season. And also when you came in on the, on the white horse and, and uh, you know, new sheriff in town, so to speak. And, and now you had 70 hung on you. And you lost to two decidedly mediocre teams, and that's being kind, at home. For the University of Colorado, again, this week will be tough with USC. Um, I didn't see them getting crushed like they did in Eugene. And you know there are people gunning for Dion because they're over Dion. They're over Coach Prime. They're over... Uh, you know, guys flashing watches in 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 uh, in cameras after after victories, but because of all that, because of the attention that he has brought to Colorado, ninety five percent of it has been super positive, and it's been a big reason why Colorado has turned things around and been the story not just in college football but in all of sports. So, you know, I- I- is there some? negativity that people are going to find there? Certainly. And so there's going to be a lot of people that are applauding when you get beat, when you get knocked off your throne. And uh, I agree with with what Dion said after the game. He said, you better, you better get me now because this is the lowest point we're going to be. The only issue I had with it, it's not you, Coach Prime, it's us. It's never an individual. It's not It's not a tennis match, and, and you lost a tennis match you were supposed to win, and you can come off the court and say, well, you better get me now because this is as low as I'll be. This is a football team comprised of, you know, 100-plus players and, you know, 15-plus coaches, whatever it is, and all the equipment guys, et cetera. It's us. You better get us now, not me now. That was my only issue with what Coach Prime said uh, after the game, and I and I think in the grand scheme of things, uh, probably not the worst thing in the world that they got their butt handed to them because at some point it was going to happen, and, and maybe it's more of a wake up call than if they had lost late to Oregon and it was you know forty two thirty eight final or or something along those lines. 
So uh, again, I, I think uh, at the end of the day, it'll end up being uh, a positive. Broncos and Bears this week. I think I think the Broncos beat the Bears. Bears are terrible. I think the Bron- I think the Broncos bounce back. Oh, one other thing with the Broncos. Um, Russell Wilson, get off this case. Russell Wilson has been a, a top half of the league, maybe even slightly better than that quarterback this year. If you look at some of the metrics, QBR, um, some of the some of the other ways that we rate quarterbacks, he's fine. He's playing much better than he did a year ago. I like a lot of the things that I've seen from Russell Wilson. It's not about Russell Wilson. And here's something else. You know, if the Broncos end up with one of the, you know, worst records in football this year, and everybody's saying, hey, it's a great quarterback class, let's let this season play out first before you're in a rush to go and get one of those young quarterbacks, and then you have to go through all of those pains. Because I think there may truly be fuel left in the tank of Russell Wilson for more than just one year. And isn't that kind of what Sean Payton alluded to early on when he took the job? Get me with Russell Wilson and, and you know, there, there's a lot left there for Russell Wilson. Well, that's the one, I suppose, truism that I've seen, at least in, in, in the first few weeks. And I know people love to hate on, on Russell Wilson, especially when when the team's 0-3 and they just got 70 hung on them. Uh, people, it pains them to, to hear him because he's relentlessly positive, even uh, in the, the midst of an 0-3 start. So there you have it. Those are uh, my uh, my football takes. Um, Colorado State, congrats. They needed to win after having the great effort against the University of Colorado and coming up short. They needed to win. They went to Middle Tennessee State, a, a team I believe that's played in a number of bowl games the last uh, few years. And they found a way to have a good second half and to hang on late and get some stops and, and win a football game on the road. And they have Utah Tech, who I don't know if I've ever heard of, this week at home. Uh, that should be a victory. And then you're 2-2, two and two, and then you get into the, the Mountain West Conference, and we'll see how they do from there. But uh, congrats to Jay Norvell and Colorado State. Uh, we told you uh, off the top it was a rough weekend for all Colorado sports, leaked into the start of the week. Colorado, as in the Rockies, lost their 100th uh, game of the year. We've seen this coming for a while now. There had been speculation earlier in the year, could this be the first Rockies team that that loses 100? And um, You know, early on, I didn't think that would happen. I, I think my thought was the Rockies always find a way, even in bad, bad years, to, to avoid that number of losses. They usually do enough at home that, um, you know, 100 losses, you know, was still at arm's length. It's not. They're, they lost 100 now after losing the nightcap of a doubleheader against the Dodgers 11-2 to on Tuesday. And what does it mean? Well, for me, I don't look at it as some great source of pride. Hey, through 30 plus years now, 31st years, the first year we've lost 100 games, we've never lost 100. I, if you're bad, whether it's 102 or 97 losses or 96 losses, it, it doesn't really matter because you know you have a long way to go to turn things around and head in the other direction. So I don't dwell on that. Source of pride for me 
should be postseason berths, should be, you know, 88, 90 plus win seasons where you're in contention, where you do play in October 2017, 2018, going way back 07, 09. Not, hey, let's, you know, put a feather in our cap because we've we've not lost 100 games. I honestly, and I mean this, I could not tell you in, in the in the tough years what the loss total was. I couldn't even tell you last year what the final loss total was. I know it was, you know, in the mid-90s somewhere, or but I couldn't tell you exactly. I just know it was, it was a bad year. This year's a bad year. And the Rockies are doing, as I've said before, the right things now in that they're playing young players. They're trying to find out, you know, who's going to be part of the solution moving forward. They're They're building up their farm system, which had become, you know, very depleted. Um, they seemingly are doing a better job in the draft. Uh, they're doing, uh, you know, a good job in Latin America of late. Um, and how long that process takes, we shall see. Uh, but, you know, 100 losses, I, I think you could see it come in the last month. And, yeah, it, it's it's certainly a big number. It's a number that you go, wow. Um, but in in the, again, grand scheme of things, would it matter whether it was, you know, 102, 104 versus 98? Uh, I don't know if it does. And we'll have this conversation uh, coming up with Spilly uh, in a moment. So one of the things I wanted to do this week is kind of, you know, you never completely put a period on things, but the season comes to a close. Uh, the Rockies have had you know, really um, murderous schedule over the last six, eight weeks. Every team they played literally was a plus 500 team or a postseason contender. The only team that was below 500 the last six weeks were were the Padres, and the Padres still, you know, were battling away trying to turn their whole thing around with that super talented roster. And they may be the most disappointing team along with the Mets and you know, all of baseball. Um, But I think ultimately that was a good thing for the Rockies because it allowed some of these young guys to play against elite talent um, and and compete against teams where every game had great meaning. Um, So uh, there there was value uh, to that. But, you know, as we as we end this season, wanted to talk to uh, Spilly specifically about, uh, you know, some of the things that he saw some of the things that uh, he looks at in analyzing young players and where the Rockies are, where they're going, and quite frankly, how long it will take to get there. So we uh, we kick it around. We do it on television a lot, and I thought we'd do it on the podcast uh, this week. My partner, my good friend, and uh, a former Rocky hero, Ryan Spilkowitz. All right, Spilly, uh, 100 losses. We kind of, for the last, I don't know, two, three, four weeks, it seemed inevitable. It arrived. Is this, I, I feel like one of those, uh, you know, Stephen A. show, big deal, little deal. Is it? Is it a big deal, honestly, to you? Or is it just, you know, you know, a bad season is a bad season. And regardless of whether it's 98 losses or 102 losses, it's the same deal. No, I think it's a bad deal. I think 100 is a... Is, uh is a pretty good indicator that you're you need to make some changes. I, I think I think as you look around baseball and and you know the the reality that 
you know, a hundred loss season is is like you know, worthy of note. You know, like a like a hundred win season is is worthy of note. And I think the fact that the Rockies, after 30 years, this is their very first one. Um, it's a little disappointing, especially given the fact that I, I know there's been high hopes with this team, and I, I know from just paying attention to like the rest of the division and everything like that, that a hundred losses, I think, is a wake up call. You know, like I, I, and I agree with you to a point. I mean, if you if the Rockies ended up with 99 losses versus 102. Isn't that still a wake-up call? My answer would still be yes. But um, the fact that the organization has never reached 100, and, you know, there's there's times where, you know, I didn't – I never wanted to be part of a 100-loss team. I've been parts of some teams that have lost a lot of games. But, you know, to actually see or be a part of 100 losses, I think in one sense from a baseball standpoint, um, you should be a little embarrassed about it. You know, like – you're, you're in the big leagues, you're on the team, uh, your goal ultimately is to compete and to win and, and to, you know, obviously be successful and, and hopefully you're able to, you know, have a financial reward um, that takes care of you and your family for, for ages, but nobody wants to be part of a 100-loss team. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I completely understand that. Um, my take has always been that your source of pride should be, you know, for you, 07, you guys go to a World Series. 09, you go to the postseason. That it's going to the postseason as opposed to, well, we never lost 100 games because, you know, if you're bad, if you have a bad year, it is what it is. And the numbers fade. Quite honestly, in the years where the Rockies didn't win, I couldn't tell you whether they lost 92, 94, 96, 87. I just knew that it was not a playoff year. But I but I tell you what, I can tell you every playoff year. 2023 for the rest of your Rockies, you know, broadcasting career. You will know that this is the year that they lost 100 games. Yeah, probably right. You know, probably right. So um, there there is something there. You know, looking at it from a, a positive standpoint, as this thing has unfolded and trying to glean some positives, it's about individuals and finding individuals who can help collectively make you a contending team. Where do you start of the guys you've seen and say, hey, that's a winning player, that's an upper division player? Uh, I think there's a lot of things there. I mean, a winning baseball player to me, and it's not work ethic. I think there's times where we get lost in, you know, the Cardinals way or, you know, like a guy shows up super early and, and it's kind of eyewash. You, you know, like you have to have talent first and foremost. You, you have to be a skilled player. Um, a winning player is, is, is a guy that is accountable. I mean, it's accountable for his actions. He's accountable to his teammates. He's accountable to – uh, his his team, his family, you know, dependable, you know, availability is probably the most important asset, right? Like being able to to post. So, you know, when you think about winning players, I want guys that that understand the nuance of the game. I, I want them to understand the the small aspects, uh, paying attention to being able to hit behind a runner, cut the bases, cut the pillows, you know, when to run on a on an outfielder, when not, when to get, you know, try to extend that extra ninety feet, when not to. Because all those little things add up. Everybody in the major leagues is a major leaguer. 
Uh, and the difference between a, a good team and a bad team is the margins. And and I think a great example of it is the Padres this year. I mean, there's no debating. You cannot debate with me that the Padres had on paper one of the best collections of talent in Major League Baseball. You cannot debate that with me. And what you also can't debate is the fact that the, the Padres this season were the worst team in baseball by far in one-run games, and they had a losing record. They didn't even have a win in extra inning games. How is that possible? And if you go and you watch the Padres, and we've seen it, they could not do the little things. They did not play winning baseball as a unit. And so you can have all the talent in the world, but not being able to do the little things like we see with the the Brewers or the Diamondbacks or the Dodgers, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, they do small things that you do not pay attention to until it exposes your team. Uh, and so that, that to me is the Rockies are looking to get to that next level. It's understanding which of your players are capable of doing those things, which of the players are understanding situations, can take a walk, um, you know, hit situationally, play situationally, defend situationally, all those small marginal times that, that requires high baseball IQ, figure out which players those are and start building around them. Well, it, it clearly looks like they have two young players that you absolutely would want to build around, whether you're the Colorado Rockies or, or the Los Angeles Dodgers, and that's Nolan Jones and Ezekiel Tovar. I want to start with Jones. Uh, first of all, a couple quick questions. Is he your team MVP, or would you go in a different direction? Mm-hmm. I, I haven't thought about that. Um, uh, that was a good question because I, I don't know. There's not really a player that stands out, to be honest, right now with with the Rockies, just because I, I think we're – I'm not in the clubhouse day in, day out. Uh, I think it's hard. You know, to be a team MVP is somebody that kind of raises the standards of the of the group. Uh, I still think Charlie kind of holds that title. So, But I do know that Nolan Jones is is incredibly passionate, and he, want, he has the fire to get better. Um, so I think it's fair based on his stats. And, and to me, a, a team MVP goes beyond what I can see. I, I can't see – uh, the day-to-day behind the scenes, but from from what I understand and from you know the numbers that he's put up, I think I think Nolan Jones is a fair uh, team MVP nominee. Spilly, based on the attributes that you look for, and you just said he has a passion, and it's clear we're around enough. It, it is it is pretty clear he has a passion to be great. Has he surprised you? with how rapidly he's improved, considering he'd be the first to tell you he was not good in February and March. The first time he was called up, he did not even get on the field. It wasn't until the second time when he tore it up uh, in AAA Albuquerque that he came up. Has he improved more dramatically, and he, is he better than you ever could have envisioned? Um, that's a good question, too. I mean... I think if you see players, you try not to, to box them before they even get a chance to play, right? Like, I, I didn't put a, a cap on Nolan Jones when I first saw him. I, I haven't put a cap on certain players when I, when I first see you. I, I, I just want – I mean, like, it's really hard to post judgment on watching you take batting practice or, or watching you play in, in a week's worth of games. So um, – Maybe he surprised himself. I didn't really have a, an expectation for him. You know, like I, I knew he had a good skill set. I wanted to see what he's capable of doing. Uh, 
Um, I like the swing mechanics that he had. I like the athleticism of, of how he played. Uh, I like the, the fire, like just watching him come in and come out after, you know, he makes an out or he gets a hit. I liked, liked his demeanor. Um, but as far as like having a good understanding of what he was capable of doing, I, I didn't really know. Um, like I'll give you another example. I really think he compares nicely to Kyle Tucker with the Astros. And we saw Kyle Tucker uh, early in his career when he first got to the big leagues. You know, he, he almost debuted. I want to say he was close, awfully close to debuting. Um, in, in, in Colorado and we saw the swing. I was like, mm, pretty good. Like, I'm not, but I, I didn't pass judgment. If I would have passed judgment of him that, that first week that I saw him, I would have told you he's not that great of a player. But we just kind of let it play out. And, uh, you know, Kyle Tucker ends up being probably a top 15 player, uh, in the American League. I don't know if Nolan Jones can be a top 15 yet, but I certainly see the, the ability. And, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to cap him. I think he's, He's capable of doing whatever he wants. Yeah, he can impact the game in a lot of ways. And, you know, he, he in the baseball vernacular, he runs well underway, but he's, you know, he's a big dude. Man, he's 6'5, probably 230 pounds or in that neighborhood. Yet he's fearless in stealing bases and not just eyewash bases. He wants to, you know, steal important bases. We know he's he's getting better route wise in the outfield. His arm speaks for itself. Um, there's a there's so many things there that that you go wow that can be you know a really special talent an all star talent. But one thing we've learned look no further than the Angels. You got to have more than one or two or three. You need a bunch of guys in the sport of baseball to win ninety plus. And so he needs friends, and that kind of leads me to. To Tovar, what have you appreciated the most about watching this once 21-year-old and now more recently just turned 22, how his season's unfolded? Yeah, I mean, he seemed, he has seemed uh, under under command the entire time. He's been kind of cool, under pressure. He doesn't seem overwhelmed by any moment. Um, I like his steadiness. I like the fact that he, you know, he's available every single day. I like the aggressiveness of him as a defender. I like aggressive shortstops, so you know he kind of he's not passive by any means. So I, I really do. I, I enjoy watching how Tovar. I just played this, played the game like it was a game. Like it didn't seem like he was overwhelmed by being a big leaguer. So I, yeah. I, I really admire that. I mean, that's that's been not an easy thing to do because I think a lot of times, you know, if you overthink things, if you start thinking about the magnitude of what you're actually doing, you. you you start to like lose sight of what you're capable of, of competing and performing. So I, I think he's been really impressive, really, really impressive. I mean, he still has a ways to go offensively, but defensively, I don't think you can ask for, for much more than what he's been able to do. You know what? You just spoke to this, so it's unfair, but I'm going to ask anyhow. I mean, Spilly, put your, your you know expertise in the game, having played it, having watched it, having studied it, having coached it. What type of offensive player can he be when he fully matures? Um, I mean, I, again, I'm trying not to cap him at all. Uh, I, I, he will always – there's an anchor on his skill set, which is strike zone discipline and, and his ability to, to take a walk. So, I mean, until that part of his game improves, you know, he's, he's only going to be as good as his as his ability to get hit. Um, and, and so, 
you know, I, I think he can hit. I think he hits, handles low pitches really, really well. Uh, I think he's got the ability to, to drive the ball in the gap. I think he's probably a 50 to 55 extra base hits every single year type of hitter, which is great. Um, but until that on-base percentage, that the ability to, to work a walk, um, until that improves, I mean, he's, he's always going to be hamstrung by that. That's, that's, that's one of his few inefficiencies in his game. Um, and, and I don't know, like, part of that, Drew, is innate, you know, part of that is just, it's, it's, it's a God-given talent that you stay within the strike zone. Um, some guys, you know, like I said, he's a very aggressive player. Uh, so mentally he might not be able to, you know, pinpoint a, a certain pitch. Um, he might not be able to, like, just stay within the strike zone. It, it just might be in his character to, to swing outside the strike zone, which is fine. I, I mean, it, it's, it's, but it, it can't, if he wants to get to that elite level, if he wants to get to that next tier, um, then that's, that's going to be where his focus has to be is, is commanding the strike zone, staying within it. Uh, in driving the baseball. Having battled uh, at the big league level for as long as you did and as well as you did, when you look at a guy like Brenton Doyle, who uh, I know because you and I have had this conversation many times on television, Huey and Sully as well, you know, we haven't seen a better center fielder maybe ever at Coors Field. He should win a gold glove in the National League. Uh, all the advanced metrics ex- uh, suggest that as well. But can Brenton Doyle, who's basically a, a 200 hitter right now with, with a, a big swing and miss component, can he be a 230 hitter with 20 home runs playing that gold glove caliber defense? Or is that a big leap um, for a guy offensively that, that does have swing and miss? Yeah, I, I think it's a big leap. And I, and I also don't think it should matter. I, I like, I, I've, I've continued to argue with people. When it comes to Brenton Doyle and his ability to play center field, you cannot worry about batting average. And I get it. Like, people are like, well, can he just hit 200? Can he hit 230? And I was like, why does that matter? What's the difference between uh, 19 hits and, and four extra hits a month? Is that really going to, like, impress you? So you're like, oh, wow. Does that mean that, that you're going to play him more? Because the answer is no. His, his defensive ability in center field is so above and beyond that any sort of shortcomings from him as a hitter, even if he hit 160, uh, the value for him in center field to what the, what it means to the pitching staff, what it means to the right fielder and left fielder, it's just incalculable. I mean, it, it, it's worth more than four extra hits a month. So to me, I, I don't care about his batting average. I never have. If he runs into 20 homers, great. Um, the way I view him, and I, and I wish more people would look at him this way, is pictured him as an elite catcher. I mean, that's ultimately what he is. He is an off-the-charts pitch framer. He's an off-the-charts receiver. Uh, he's, he's the type of catcher like an Austin Hedges where, you know, pitching staff, good pitching staff have him when it's the postseason. He's the catcher behind home plate because the pitching staff pitches better. You have to look at Doyle the exact same way and not worry so much about batting average, but how he's impacting the defense, because that, to me, is where his biggest impact is. Yeah, I love that analogy. Um, I hadn't heard you articulate it in that fashion before, but I think think you're right. And, and, you know, you keep your fingers crossed. He's he's, he's got a great work ethic like Nolan Jones does, that he can improve offensively enough where there's more there. We have seen him have some moments uh, offensively. Of the other guys that we've seen – this year, 
Um, and, and they're small sample sizes. Guys like Hunter Goodman, who came up and, and did wonderfully well initially, and, and as we speak today, you know, he's in, in a bit of a funk. Um, have you seen enough of some of those young guys that you are intrigued? And and talk specifically about one or two, if you would. So Hunter Goodman, I'm intrigued. I, I, he's going to hit. I'm not worried about that. I think what, what happened to Hunter Goodman is, you know, you, you hear me talk about the wall. He hit it face first. I mean, he ran into this part of the season is is really taxing and grinding on the body if he's never done it before. Goodman's had a, a longer season than he's accustomed to. He's he's bounced among, amongst different levels, uh, and then he gets sporadic playing time. So to me, he he ran into the wall, and, and that's fine. I'm not worried about Hunter Goodman. He can hit. So um, I think Montero's been intriguing for me just because. The improvement in the last half of the season's been noticeable. I still worry about him because I don't think he's a I don't think he's a defender. Um, so his bat really needs to be, you know, as a DH. And, and you know, what what does that upside look like as him as a DH? Uh, is he capable of being a platoon DH? Can he come off the bench? I'm not sure. Um, but I, I have been impressed with with what I've seen with Montero. I still I, I love Bouchard. I think what I saw last year before he got hurt, you know, like 100 at bats, nearly a 300 batting average, or 420 on base percentage. I'd like to see that. I think he's capable of being a healthy outfielder. Um, I think he's going to be a, a good big leaguer uh, just based on his ability to hit. I, I think he needs to go uh, play winter ball along with Michael Tolia. And, and in the case of Tolia. I really do. I mean, like, I use Cedric Mullins as a, as a really good example. Cedric Mullins stopped switch hitting and just focused on hitting left-handed, and he went from being um, a bench player to a 30-30 player. I, I think the skill set's there for Tolia to be a good hitter. Um, I just don't think it's, it's there to be a good switch hitter. So I, I, would, I would really encourage Tolia to go to winter ball, tighten up the swing, be consistent, just hit left-handed, come back and be a good player. Has Charlie surprised you how well he's played, how youthful he looks, uh, even running around the outfield the last uh, six weeks? No, no, I mean, nothing surprises me with Charlie. I mean, Charlie's Charlie. You know, the, the, the guy's like, if you told me he plays till 45, I'll say, yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, he looks great. I, I think he, he even said it to me a couple times. I, I, he benefited from two months off in the middle of the season. So, I mean, his body's fresh. Uh, so, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've kind of been joking around. Like, I'm just waiting any moment now for, for Rockies to, to announce an extension of Charlie Blackman for the next two years and, and be done with it. Um, <laughs> I'm just kind of waiting for it. Like, let's go before the 2023 season's over. Um, that feels like a, like a Rockies thing that they would do with Charlie. I think what they've seen down the stretch with Charlie is, is kind of to your point. Like, he looks fantastic. So, um, yeah, I mean, Charlie, there's nothing Charlie does that ever surprises me. I've grown to the point of, of just accepting Charlie for what he is, and um, he's, he's just a great baseball player. All right, fix the pitching staffs, Billy. You got uh, you got 45 seconds. How, how would you pit? You know, th- there were a lot of injuries. Injuries are part of sport. They're they're particularly uh, a huge uh, element to the art of pitching. Pitchers get hurt. I always say this: there, there's three guarantees in life: death, taxes, and pitchers get hurt. Um, how do you start to cobble together a rotation? Um, you know, moving forward because the sport never changes. It's always about those guys on the hill. Well, I, I think first off. 
I think the Rockies can't use pitching and, and injuries as an excuse because I, I think if you look around the league, I mean, nobody's been decimated by, by pitching injuries worse than Tampa Bay or the Dodgers, uh, and and they're doing just fine. So to me, it, it, you, you really have to – I think you have to promote from within. I think you have to be – you know, I, I would shy away from free agent pitchers. Um, I think if, if you're drafting every single year and you're getting anywhere from – you know, eight to ten new pitchers in the draft, and then you're you're signing some undrafted free agents. Uh, if you're willing to make trades of, of position players to acquire more talent, because you know the Rockies just did that, um, then you then you have to be able to earmark what you're looking for. Are you looking for guys with better secondary pitches that can throw strikes? Are you looking for more velocity? Are you looking for different shapes, different toning? I mean, I, I think. You know what? What Tampa Bay has done really exceptionally well, and I think part of it too is, is you know, some of these teams that are pitching well, they pitch in a controlled environment. I mean, it's a it's a fact. Houston, Toronto, um, Tampa Bay. You start looking at some of these dome teams, even Arizona. Um, they they are pitching in a in a much more controlled environment. So the variables of, of pitching in heat or pitching in cold or, or weather. Um, like we experienced in Colorado, isn't 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 there for them. So the Rockies, to me, you know, when I do look at Tampa, Tampa Bay, what they've done is they've earmarked two pitches that a pitcher can throw consistently for strikes. They don't worry about the corners. Um, they're almost you know thinking about pitching like you're shooting a shotgun. You're just kind of doing a buckshot uh, at the strike zone, and they're constantly on attack. I mean, the Seattle Mariners, they throw more strikes with fastballs than any team in baseball. So that's that's what has to happen for Colorado is find your pitchers, use as many as you can, um, have, you know, have variety, have high spin rate, low spin rate, curveball, changeup, forkball, you name it, but have, have a pitching staff that throws more strikes than everybody. I would agree with that, and I would add this. There has to be an emphasis on finding guys that miss bats, though. However it's done. I mean, we always lean toward velocity, but they're, they're guys that miss bats with, you know, great secondary pitches, whether it's an all, you know, a, a changeup. We're seeing more plus changeups in the game than, than I can recall. Um, but you got to miss bats. When I watch some of these teams, Spillian, last night when we were doing the Dodger game, Pepio, um, you know, a, a guy out of Butler University, he missed a lot of bats, a lot of swing and misses. And the Rockies don't have enough of those guys that miss bats because you know they're going to deal with a lot of traffic um, because of where they play. Well, and in the case of Pepio and even even Jones, uh, I mean Miller, Bobby Miller, they were throwing strikes. They were filling up the strike zone. I mean it was it was close to seventy percent, I think, for Bobby Miller in Game Two, and Pepio was right around sixty five percent strike rate with both fastball and changeup. So. You have to throw strikes, and then to strikes, the more strikes you throw, the more bats you miss. I mean, it's been a pretty simple correlation. Yeah. Did we did we learn at least from from Houston, uh, you know, a decade ago, and from Baltimore more recently, that even though the Rockies have lost a hundred, this doesn't have to be a you know another seven year project to return to uh, a, a team that can contend that. Uh, it may not be overnight. I'm not suggesting next year all of a sudden the Rockies become a 90-plus win team, but it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, so far down the road that it that it seems, uh, you know, like an endless journey. Well, unfortunately, I will say the new draft rules make it much more difficult 
to bounce back like Baltimore and Houston in years past. I don't think Houston or Baltimore would have had the turnaround if it wasn't for the losses being directly correlated to the first overall pick um, because, you know, Houston was able to draft Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman. Um, Baltimore was able to acquire Abby Rutschman. You know, like those, if, if, if Baltimore got the 10th overall pick, um, you know, like, and, and look at some of the young players that they got, right? They got Jackson Holiday with the first overall pick. I just, I just think it, it, it is a longer road now with the new draft rules, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's not, you're not feasible or capable of getting it around in a hurry. All right. Let me fire a few quick ones at you, um, from a national perspective. Um, and, and we'll focus on the National League because that's where, uh, you, you're doing games nationally on Fridays with, with Apple. So you do see the American League, uh, you know, more than most, but, uh, we'll, we'll settle into the National League. Acuna versus Betts, great, great race for the MVP. Uh, who do you like and why? Man, this one's really tough. Um, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of like I'm like a coin flip. 40 and 70 is historic, but it's also a byproduct of the new rules, you know, with the new bases. Uh, Mookie Betts has a really fantastic argument just based on his uh, ability to move around the diamond, which allowed the Dodgers to kind of throw out their, their best lineup. Um, man, I, I, I picked, I picked Acuna at the start in January when I saw some highlights of him in, in Winterball. So I'm going to stick with Acuna just so I can feel smart. Um, but if I, I mean, I think if I was to really, really consider it, I would probably lean towards Mookie Betts, realizing that, um, his ability to, for Dave Roberts to put him out as a shortstop or uh, second base, and then still be a gold glove caliber right fielder. And some have argued he's even a gold glove caliber second baseman. Um, that to me is, is an incredible amount of value to the team. So yeah. And I, and I don't think you can overstate that. I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. A guy that can be a gold glove caliber uh, right fielder and then step on the dirt and play at an elite level. Um, I, I don't think that should be uh, easily dismissed. And I'll add something else that I think is fascinating about it. We're so used to focusing on the guys who win MVP, probably batting third in some lineup. These are two leadoff guys. Isn't that isn't that interesting? Yeah, both guys have 40 homers, and both guys have over 100 RBIs. So I mean, like, it, it really is going to be it's going to be really close in the MVP between those two. Sleeper team in in either league as we embark on the postseason. Milwaukee. Yeah. Milwaukee has a chance has a chance to make a legitimate. We're on their pitching staff too good. They're they're way too well coached. Um, they just they 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 haven't been able to score a lot of runs. If they if they scored more, um, they would be you know they, I think they would, they could knock out any team. Um, but Milwaukee is my sleeper team. I think if I was to look for a sleeper team in the uh, in the American League, I don't think it's really a sleeper. But um, Seattle, if they do get in, and I think they have a chance to win the division if they if they play really well this week, uh, they can go from being in that outside looking into winning the division. If they win the division, uh, they're they're trouble. Like they they are really really trouble. Like they have a pitching staff that can get them all the way to the World Series. Um, By the way, I know you and, you and I were probably up late last night watching the end of that game against Houston. Matt Brash, that's just disgusting. I mean. That that kid's disgusting. You know, 100, 100, 101, and that slider. Come on, man. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah ridiculous. Saying. Yeah. 
Okay, two-parter on Shohei Otani. He's wearing what uniform next spring? And in 2025, he is a starter or closer? Uh, I have no idea who he's going to play for in next year. I mean, I, I don't even know who's going to come out of the woodworks. I think I think the financials of what Otani means to your organization is, is so significant that every team should – I mean, the Rockies should be making a bid on it. Um, I think he ends up in Atlanta. I think uh, if I'm if I'm the Braves, uh, Otani's a perfect fit. I, I get him as a DH for next year, and then uh, I get to use him in I, as a, in a rotation or a closer in 2025. I'd probably use him as a as a bullpen arm, to be honest. Um, I have him as a Los Angeles Dodger. It just seems pretty obvious that that uh, that that's where he ends up. But we'll find out if he's in Atlanta. Man, that would be uh, boy. No fun for the rest of the National League East. Um, the funniest line I had this year of the many that um, I threw your direction. Go. Uh, I think whenever you do any of the Rockies reads, it's really funny. Yeah. I thought last night when I was going to dump water on your head to wake you up for game two. But, you know, that's the one source recent on my mind. Spilly, I love you. You're the best. Um, go do a lot outs now. You got it. See ya. Big thanks to Spilly, who now I uh, will go and see at the ballpark and uh, call another Rockies ball game as they uh, have two more against the Dodgers as we tape on this uh, Wednesday afternoon, and then the Twins uh, come to town. A little bit more on Nolan Jones. I'm just so intrigued by what he's done, and I think back to spring training and you know your your eyes were on him for a couple of reasons because he was an acquisition who was well thought of uh, by Cleveland and got to the big leagues last year and he didn't do horribly he did he did okay he did like most first year guys did he had a few moments and and um, you know the numbers were okay they weren't eye popping and they weren't eye poppingly bad and they picked him up and the other reason you notice him is he's a big dude man he's a big athletic guy. You know, six five, two and a quarter, two thirty, and he did not have a good spring. Struck out a lot, um, so much so that when the Rockies did call him up because they had an injury and they had a need over the weekend uh, back in, I don't even remember if it was April or early May, he came up, and and Buddy almost always with a young guy will will put him in the lineup, give him one start, but he didn't even put him in the lineup. He never pinch hit. He didn't do anything. He, he just took batting practice for three days, and then he was sent back out. I think that was an indication of just how poor his spring was and where he was at that point in time on the ladder. And he continued, once he went back down to Albuquerque, to kill it. I don't mean just play well. I mean, he was um, as good as any player in the, in the Pacific Coast League, and he forced his way back up. Now, when he came back up again in the latter part of May, it was to play. And he has really played, and he's really grown, and he's improved at the big league level, so much so that I hold on to not just the overall numbers and some of these great throws from the outfield, and as we speak, he's got 19 home runs, and if he hits 20, he's he's going to get the, the bonus from Chris Bryant of he's going to get a Rolex watch, kind of a, a, a side bet that uh, Chris Bryant challenged him with. But this kid has hit lefties. 
He's hit out on the road. In fact, his numbers on the road may be slightly better than at home. And he's hit with two strikes. And he's hit better than 420 with runners in scoring position. One of the absolute best marks in all of baseball this year. So that really gets my attention. And and I'm excited about his future. I think he can be a big-time star. And I, I hate getting ahead of myself. I know sometimes we get caught in small sample sizes. But I really do think he can be a star. But as we've learned with the Angels, they jump to mind right away, with Mike Trout, who was the best player uh, in the game you know, for a long period of time. He's dealt a lot of injuries the last couple of years. Um, but the Angels didn't go anywhere, really, with Mike Trout. They didn't go anywhere with, with two generational talents and Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. So it takes more than one. You need a lot of friends. Tovar is going to be a good friend to to Jones and a good friend to all of you because they're going to be part of what turns this thing around. Now you need more of that. But can't say enough positive things about Nolan Jones and about Ezekiel Tovar. But but Jones, man, he just he keeps doing things where you go, wow. And being around him, as Billy and I were talking about, this guy's driven. He is driven to be great. And I, I've always said this, man, in whatever vocation, but particularly athletics, there has to be a talent level that suggests greatness, and then there has to be a desire that matches it to get greatness. And he's got them both. That'll do it for uh, this edition of our little podcast. Big thanks, as always, to uh, to Marky. By the way, Marky told me he was in Vegas over the weekend. This is how bad things were. Um for the Broncos and the Buffs last weekend. And I guess the Rockies losing 100. But this this goes back to last weekend. Um, he was wearing something that, you know, Colorado on it. And, and, and people were coming up giving him condolences because the Broncos had, had given up 70 and, and the Buffs, you know, got steamrolled in, uh, in Eugene. Next weekend's a new weekend, and uh, next week's a new week. As I say, uh, every week we'll do it again in seven days, and uh, we'll chat then. Stay safe, stay well, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.